This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. And welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. The pandemic has changed us in some ways that are profound. We'll look at a few lifestyle trends coming in 2022. And it was one of the biggest news stories of the year. A new book takes us behind the scenes in the release of The Two Michaels. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The British government has just launched its latest review of the state pension age, and there are calls to shelve plans to raise the eligibility age. The current plan would see the threshold go up from 66 to 67 by 2028. But a new report says life expectancy has stalled even before the pandemic, and that no changes should be made for 30 years. The study argues the move to 67 should not come until 2051 and the rise to 68 not before the mid-2060s. Population growth stalled in the U.S. in 2021. The Census Bureau says the American population grew by 0.1%, just over 390,000 people in the year that ended July 1st, and that's the slowest rate since the nation's founding. The Bureau said it was the result of decreased net international migration, decreased fertility, and increased mortality due in part to COVID-19. The idea was that white people sit in front and you sit behind them, But I refuse to move. 66 years after she was arrested for refusing to give her bus seat to a white person, Claudette Colvin's juvenile record has been expunged. The court records of the now 82-year-old civil rights pioneer have been sealed, destroyed, and expunged following a judge's ruling. She was 15 at the time, and it came just nine months before Rosa Parks' far more famous arrest for a similar act of civil disobedience. Colvin sought to clear her record before moving to Texas to be near family. Oh, gosh, you can't get rid of me, can you? They haven't caught on to me yet. They will any minute. Betty White is turning 100 in three weeks, and she's working it. The iconic comedic actress and former Golden Girl celebrates her milestone birthday January 17th, and fans are invited to a special movie event called Betty White, 100 Years Young, A Birthday Celebration. It follows White in her day-to-day life, including behind the scenes on sets, working with her office staff, entertaining at home, lending her voice as an animal advocate and taking viewers to her actual birthday party. In a statement, the soon-to-be centenarian said, who doesn't love a party? As we put away this year's Christmas greeting cards, some special ones designed by a young Beatrix Potter 
are about to go on display at the Victoria and Albert Museum. She's best known for her children's books featuring animals such as The Tale of Peter Rabbit. Potter was 23 when she designed cards for family and friends when a greeting card publisher discovered them and commissioned her illustrations in 1890. The vintage Victorian cards with her signature illustrations will be displayed at the UK Museum as part of the Drawn to Nature exhibition set to open in February and run until 2023. The author, who is also a prominent natural scientist and conservationist, died in 1943. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's traditional at this season to forecast trends in business, technology, fashion, design, and even food. But one major consulting company says this year there are changes that are more profound that will alter our relationships and how we see ourselves. I talked with Accenture's Ryan McCracken. One of the first thing you note is a change from a, quote, we mentality to a me mentality. Is that the result of staying apart or isolated? The pandemic has been extremely traumatic, and it's, but it's really given people new perspective on what's really important to them. Many are finding they're now more focused on deeper relationships. They're open to new possibilities, and they're now more aware of their personal strengths. So as they think about that, they're questioning what matters to them. And how do I find new confidence to show up in a new way with that newfound item? So I really think it's being influenced heavily by the pandemic. And and how it's manifesting itself is that people are seeing what they're good at, their hobbies, they're showing up as their true selves. And they're really trying to find a different way to deal with what they had. It's really giving them other avenues to express themselves in in that way. And so I, I really do think it's heavily influenced by the pandemic. And it's certainly something that employers family members, et cetera, need to sort of understand further and, and, and address and, and be supportive of. How would it, for instance, affect other family members? Is that in terms of what their expectations are or anything like that? So I think it's, I think it's both expectations and then the evolution of, of what an aspiration for a, a young person, a Gen Z, would be. Even when I was a kid, you were talking about going off and getting a, a corporate job or something and then moving about. Now, if you think about, uh, there's about 2 million creators that are actually making over $100,000 a year. So that's now legitimately a path. So as we think about from an employee perspective or, or from a parental perspective or a grandparent, those are viable roles. So how do you show up? How do you understand those aspirations? How do you provide support for those? Knowing that that could be a legitimate path for someone to go down and, and make a very solid living at. So I think it's about how do we support um, you know, our, our people as they do that. Before the pandemic, people were working longer. A lot mm-hmm. of people uh, retired during the pandemic. Uh, but how would that affect an older demographic that's, you know, still trying to stay in it? I mean, if you think about sort of my parents or, or, or someone like that, finding ways to monetize their hobbies, finding ways to do what they love. So they've now retired uh, fr- from that from that job that they've spent 40 years doing perhaps how do I take what I'm good at and how do I, you know, understand that strength and monetize that hobby to both create enjoyment and engagement for myself, but also to sort of make money to sustain myself? I think is there are a bunch of new tools available now, now, primarily digital, but there's certainly other ways. I do think that this presents a really interesting opportunity for people to go and, and do what they love and create a more sustainable 
you know, way of living. So I do think it offers immense opportunity for people of all ages. You speak about the end of abundance thinking. Are people seeing that as a, as a temporary blip or are people adjusting the way they think about stuff? For most of our, um, you know, sort of the last 20 years, let's say, you had the ability to go get whatever you wanted, when you wanted it, quickly, easily. As you think about the last year and scarcity hitting the headlines, it's both a practical one, as you mentioned, of the items just aren't available right now, but also one of confidence, right, of, of changing that behavior that it just will always be there. If you think about everything from Vietnamese coffee to school bus drivers to semiconductors to electrical goods like cars, there is this sort of scarcity challenge. But even if that gets addressed, I do think the sort of underlying perception that everything just isn't available whenever I want it will persist. How does that jive with, uh, you know, so many people embracing Amazon and you click something and you expect it on your doorstep really quickly in a way that is really damaging to workers? This is also driving a demand or greater what I'll call innovation. And I use innovation in a broad sense. Normally, we think of innovation as new. I need a new item. I need to enhance it. It needs to go faster. But in this sense, I mean innovation in a more broad sense in terms of how do I create a more sustainable product? How do I make sure that that is a more sustainable, you know, more pervasive item that, that just isn't going to be disrupted by, you know, or has a lower carbon footprint? Bottom line, uh, the world is changing. So uh, how do people keep up? I mean, the world is changing quickly. I really believe that not only are there uh, corporate implications of those, but they're actually sort of human or, or, or family considerations for each of them. As you think about how you talk to your family, both you know your grandparents as well as your, your grandkids and everyone in between, how you support them in what they're going through, how they are sort of responding to the world and responding to the pandemic and getting more insight in. So I think there's a number of, of places that you could sort of pull these types of trends together and think about the implications that they have on your own family. Ryan McCracken, thank you so much and Happy New Year. Thank you so much. You too. That was Ryan McCracken of Accenture. I'm Libby Zneimer and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a new take on how the two Michaels were finally freed from captivity in China. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. How did former hostages Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor become innocent pawns in the geopolitical conflict between China and the U.S.? And how did Canada finally manage to secure their release after 1,019 days in captivity? Fenn Osler-Hampson and Mike Blanchfield take us behind the scenes in their book, The Two Michaels. I talked with Mike Blanchfield. In your book, you take us behind the scenes, you know, from before the time that the two Michaels were snatched off the street and uh, a little bit into how we finally got their release. Part of the delay was because the new the newish president joe biden was determined to show uh, that he wasn't trying to meddle in the justice department that it was totally hands off what was joe biden trying to show or to prove 
that he had that he respected the independence of his Justice Department. I mean, he came to power trying to rebuild the mess that Donald Trump had left behind, and part of that mess was the fact that Trump had turned his Justice Department into a um, private law firm, basically. So he wanted to take hands off and let allow them to be independent, allow them to do you know do their investigations and their work without you know political influence. And that, unfortunately, for the Michaels, meant that they had to wait a little bit longer while the, the, the U.S. government worked through its process. In the lead-up to all of that, we had some very prominent people here in Canada who tried to secure their release, uh, but who were saying, you know what, let her go, let Meng Wanzhou go, this isn't our fight, uh, and that will facilitate the release. So, why do you figure that uh, Trudeau was so strong in saying we have to respect uh, the rules and the extradition treaty? The government had basically two concerns. One, they didn't want to, they didn't want to break their own rules for the sake of the Chinese, and they were they were they had a legitimate fear, whether it was founded or not, that, the, that if they caved in on this point, it would um, it would embolden the Chinese government or other governments just to grab take hostages and grab people whenever they wanted to have leverage over another country in a you know in a diplomatic dispute. I mean we're not saying that the US or Canada would do this sort of thing, but you know other countries that that do this that take prisoners. Um and the other factor too is um the Americans were asking Canada to enforce a treaty, a legally, you know, a legally binding treaty between two allies. And that's what they did. They asked for an uh, asked for an arrest to be made, they presented a case and that's what happened. And in the book we you know, there were a lot of Canadians who said, yeah, you should take a second look at this. But the way we have other people who were saying, and we interviewed Brian Mulroney in the book, and he said, you know, as much as I want to see these two guys out, um, you know, we have, a, we have a treaty with the United States, and that has to be respected, and we can't play around with that stuff. Let's talk about Meng Wanzhou for a bit. There was a lot of feeling that she got extra special treatment by our government. You know, she wasn't exactly kept in any kind of hardship circumstances, and her whole family got special dispensation to travel here, you know, in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, that's certainly a, you know, a valid perception. And, uh, and what's interesting was sort of the rationale that went into granting her bail. And, uh, and it was uh, at her expense uh, that this security firm was hired to basically keep an eye on her 24-7. But there was, I mean, there was a real rigorous process for bail. A lot of money was put up, um, and um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, she got, to, she basically got to uh, live in a very comfortable place. Uh, she got to read books. She didn't, uh, couldn't travel, but people could come to her. And we describe in one incident how you know she opened, got a restaurant open. She did shopping. She, by her own admission, her own statements, you know, she was doing painting, getting massages, and reading book cover to cover. Uh, you know, that wasn't the case for the two Michaels. They were in, you know held in solitary confinement for a good portion of that time. They were, you know, they, they never saw the light of day, as far as we know, for, you know, any 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 length of time, if at all, for months on end. And when COVID hit, they were held in total isolation, and they couldn't even have visits from, you know, the once-a-month once a visits from Canadian diplomats just to basically, you know, proof of life to see that they were okay. What exactly was the role that Dominic Barton, the former now ambassador to China, uh, what was his role, and uh, how much credit does he deserve for making this happen? Uh, he was hired to get these two guys out of prison, and that was his number one marching order. And that's when he came on scene in 2019, about 10 months or 10 months after the Michaels were, uh, were picked up. 
Uh, and he spent most of his time working on that with the Chinese. He had a role. He, um, he advocated. He also was one of the only people who really got to see the Michaels. Um, and again, those in-person visits were cut off in early 2020 because of the pandemic, and they only resumed like 10 months later, and they were done virtually. Like You would look at them on a TV screen you know, in another room in the prison where they were being held and t- talked to them for half an hour, and he, he did Brittany brought them home. I mean, he delivered the goods. I would say he deserves some credit, but I mean, ultimately, it was the actions of the Americans that uh, that ended this uh, when they took the decision to basically abandon this prosecution of this particular person. Where does this leave us? Is this sort of the first chapter in worsening relations, or do we go forward with better relations, both with the Americans and the Chinese? The Americans really want to see something from Canada, and we do get, we do kind of make this point in the book. They want, they want to see a China policy. I think what they want to return from, from Canada is a harder line or something that falls in line with their, you know, tough stand because, you know, Donald Trump was tough on China, but Joe Biden is also tough on China and Barack Obama was getting pretty upset with how things were going before Donald Trump came along. And that's how this whole, you know, interest in Huawei started was under his administration. So they want to see like a China policy of some kind from Canada, something hard and fast. Mike Blanchfield, thanks so much. My pleasure, Libby. That was Mike Blanchfield on his book, The Two Michaels. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.